Welcome to Ars Technica Live. Every month, we bring you an informal conversation with a thinker from the frontier of technology, science, and culture. There's only one rule, no sound bites. We record each episode before a live audience at Longitude, Oakland, California's premier tiki bar. This month, Sarus Faravar, Ars Technica's senior business editor, goes it alone in an interview with Slack Director of Engineering Leslie Miley, who tells us about the pitfalls of trying to get diversity into companies in Silicon Valley and how we can do it and when we should give up and go home. So Leslie, as you guys may have read on the Facebook page or on his bio, or maybe you've heard him as I did on the podcast Reply All, you might know that he used to work at Twitter and now works at Slack. We're here tonight to talk about diversity in Silicon Valley or lack thereof. If you've at all read the article that we posted to promote this event, somebody posted a comment saying, hey, you guys at Ars Technica, you guys aren't really diverse. You're all a bunch of white dudes. And that's true. And I'm sorry for that. <laughs> you know, I think Ars Technica, like a lot of companies and organizations, are, are struggling with how to make this work. I wanted to start off by asking Leslie if you could tell us just a little bit about how you kind of came up in Silicon Valley. You are, if I recall correctly, our Silicon Valley native. And I'm honored to be here. Uh, I've never been to this place and I've never spoken in a tiki bar before, so this is a first. It's interesting, we talk about diversity and I, I am a Silicon Valley native. I was born and raised in San Jose and I am shocked I'm here in Oakland and see more white people than black people. And that's a problem because that means that there's been a fundamental shift and the people who built Oakland and who have been in Oakland are no longer being represented. And, and I think that's not exactly a good thing. I came to Oakland as a kid. I came to Oakland as a teenager and Oakland did not look like this. So uh, this is the other side of Silicon Valley that we all get to see and experience. And you know we really should be mindful of that going forward. I grew up in East San Jose, which is a Mexican neighborhood, and I would get my ass kicked on the regular because I was a black kid in a Mexican neighborhood with a name like Leslie. So I found my way into a computer store, uh, trying to not get beat up on the way home one day, and that's how all of this started. I call it home field advantage because there aren't many places that even in the sketch part of towns would have a computer store. And, and it really set me on what I think is an incredible journey that I... I try to be thankful for more often than not. Technology was never something I was intimidated by because I watched Star Trek. And, and it was incredible because watching Star Trek, all the cool people knew how to use technology. So I wanted to be that cool. And so I just took it upon myself to, uh, to do that. So going from this experience at the age of 11 or 12 in a computer store in San Jose, how does that translate then into a professional you know, work trajectory? Uh, luck? Uh, no, seriously, a lot of it was luck. I went off to college and didn't do well because I wasn't prepared to go to college. So I got a job. I got a job at, uh, at Apple as a security guard working the graveyard shift because I'm a night owl. And I ran into similar people who were encouraging me to learn how to use computers, to learn how to program. And, and it just took off from there. My first job was doing... Uh, quality assurance testing. Uh, I did that for a couple of years at Symantec, a company called MetaCreations uh, down in um, uh, Santa Barbara area. Came back up in 1997, 1998 for the dot-com boom, and uh, my career just took off. I had people who believed in me. I was lucky enough to be in the right places at the right time. I uh, worked at a company called I call the Proto Google. It was Google before Google. It was Yahoo before Yahoo. It was a company called Ink to Me. 
and uh, just took off from there. Left there, went to Walmart.com. Uh, Walmart.com was a great place to be during the dot-com bust. Uh, why would you want to work anyplace except the largest company in the world when technology has just in seriously imploded? I stayed there for a couple of years and uh, then left there, did a short stint at Yahoo, did a longer stint at Google uh, via buyout. Uh, after Google, went to Apple, spent three and a half years at Apple, and then went to Twitter. And after three and a half years of Twitter and watching what I call the cognitive dissonance that so epitomizes that place, because there is so much cognitive dissonance in, on, around, and because of Twitter, I left and took some time off and then joined Slack. So let's dig into that. You wrote, as I recall, a big piece on Medium about your experiences at Twitter. As I recall, you had an engineering, a rather senior engineering position at Twitter, and you felt like Twitter was not responsive to the kinds of diversity issues that you were raising within the company and trying to reform from within. Can you expand upon that experience a little bit? I walk into work now and I see so many people. I see so many genders. I see people that look like me that look even much more brown than this room. And, and it's great, and I can't understand how I never really recognized how wrong that was walking into places. I, one of the stories I have at Twitter that really stuck with me was uh, one night I was leaving, and I go down into the elevator, and I get off on the first floor, and I look around, and the lobby is filled full of black people. Those of you who have been at tech companies know that never happens. Never. I, I saw so like 30 black people in the lobby, and I'm thinking, what's happening? So I ask, and they said, well, there's an event that's honoring Frida Kapoor Klein, you know, who's here in Oakland. Uh, they have a center here now in Oakland. And I said, oh, who's doing this? I thought another company was doing it. They're like, no, Twitter's hosting it. I'm thinking, how is this happening in my company? And I don't know. So I go back up to our event center uh, at Twitter, and I see a sea of brown people. And I'm like, what's going on? And they say, oh, well, we're having this big thing. We're giving an award to Frida. We have Ben Jealous, who was the former head of the NAACP speaking. Like, how did I not know this? How is the former head of the premier civil rights organization in my building and I don't know? Sponsored by my company and I don't know. So I ask around and no one can give me an answer. So I find the head of diversity and inclusion at Twitter and I ask her, how is this happening? How come I don't know about it? It's like, well, we didn't think we'd have enough room to invite all the black people at Twitter, all 25 of us. <laughs> it boggles my mind that a company and an individual at a company can actually think something like that is okay. You would not invite Hillary Clinton to your company and not invite women to go see her. You would not invite the Pope and not invite Catholic people. And it happened at an organization and a company that gives voice to black Twitter, that gave rise to the Black Lives Matter movement. That sticks out more than anything. And it sticks out more than anything because someone justified at that organization that it was okay not to invite people of color. How should those of us that you know, want to hear your message and want to do better, what can we do? Especially those of us like me that are literally powerless within our own organizations to make those kinds of hiring decisions or you know, create events or things of that nature. What can we do? I don't think you're powerless. Okay. Uh, I, I really don't. And, and we, you know, we spoke about this briefly. You have privilege that I will never have. And your privilege will never run out. My privilege runs out when I lose a job. It really does. And this is the reality of being a woman in tech. This is the reality of being black in tech. Our 
privilege runs out when we leave the room when and it does run out when we leave the room yours is always there extending your privilege is not uh, making room at the table it's giving up your seat at the table and how you do that as we as we talked is that you can tell your editors you can tell your senior editors why don't we have someone take the story instead of me why don't you extend that privilege to someone else and give them an opportunity you know that is that is what everyone can do who has that privilege? And those of us who have privilege, like I consider sitting here with you, my privilege, I want to extend that to people because there are people who have stories that are more outlandish than mine. There are people who want a break in the industry and they just need somebody to give them an opportunity. And, and that's what we should be doing. Now that you are at Slack, what do you feel like Slack is doing better than, than the, the, the maybe not as optimal experience that you had at Twitter? Yeah, I go out and say, if you're black and in engineering, come and talk to me. Uh, if you're a woman and in engineering, come and talk to me. These, these are things that people say. Stuart Butterfield is very vocal about his support. Uh, the Tech Crunch Awards, uh, the Crunchies last year, where who accepted the award were African-American women. Women of color accepted the award, not the same white guys who get up there year after year after year. Uh, what you can also do is what we do in engineering, which is uh, we have a blind scoring for our coding exercise. The people who score it don't know what school you went to, don't know what company you worked at, don't know your name, don't know anything about you except how you did on this. And once that's evaluated and it's, you, know, you pass the, the coding exercise, we bring you in. We don't go to Carnegie Mellon, we don't go to MIT, we don't go to Stanford, we don't go to Cal. Those people are going to be all right. They're going to get jobs. They know where to go. Google knows where to find them. Facebook knows where to find them. They're not going to worry. But we do want people from University of Texas at El Paso, UTEP. We do want people from San Jose State. We do want people from, from schools that most of the technology companies won't spend a lot of time going after. Are there things that uh, at a younger age, like at the, at the postgraduate, you know, undergraduate, or even high school or younger level can do, whether it's, I don't know, mentoring or expanding programs in, in STEM or, or related areas? That's part of the myth I, I call part of the pipeline myth. Like we need more people doing this. Yes, it, it would be great if, you know, 30% of CS graduates were women or 50% were women and 30% were uh, underrepresented minorities. I think that would be great. Uh, but that's not the problem. The problem isn't that we need to fill the pipeline. The problem is the pipeline out there right now is not being tapped. And it's not being tapped because the companies that build the, the products that we use and build the next entrepreneurs and seed them with money don't value people of color. They don't value women in the same way. And, you know, we, they, they hide it by saying, we want these schools, we want these companies. But it's really, no, you want people just like you. You don't want people that look like me. You don't want women. You don't want people that are going to challenge the belief that you are special in some way, shape, or form. Now, when we were speaking earlier, you had said that, that you were sort of surprised that tools like Twitter, for example, or, or other tools like that, Facebook, haven't done as good of a job in addressing issues of, of abuse or bias or things like that than perhaps they would have had they been more inclusive in their hiring practices. I was speaking with somebody from Medium, 
who used to work at Medium. And we were talking about abuse on Medium and in the comments. Never read the comments. Anil Dash is so right about that. Do not read the comments. Don't read the comments on this post either. They were horrible. And I hope some of y'all who wrote those comments came. And if you didn't, I hope you're watching now because I want to talk to you. I, if you want to have a conversation about this, let's have a conversation about it. Don't hide behind the shadows. I worked at Google and one of the products I worked on was Blogger. And Blogger had an abuse problem in the comments. And Blogger also had a horrible porn problem and child porn problem. It was just, it was ridiculous. And once every quarter or so, we had to do what was called porn cleanup. And this is before Google figured out a way to... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, it was, I, somebody. This was part of your job. This was part of our job. It was horrid. You, you, you got a list, and you were randomly selected to go and look at these sites and clean this up. And you had to check: is it within the terms of service? Uh, trust me, I've seen the. There's no algorithm that could do this. Not at the done time. By no, I'm, I'm old. This was a while back. Uh, there's an algorithm now. There wasn't when I was doing it, and it was so amazing to see how much filth and how much just. Just really horrid, horrid things that people would put on there. And then, you know, I went to Twitter, and Twitter has much of the same problem with abuse and harassment and porn. And then I'm talking to somebody from Medium, and then it hit me. Oh, my God. The same guy created all three of these. Literally the same guy. The, Ev Williams, white guy. He doesn't get abused on the Internet. He doesn't get harassed on the Internet. Well, he probably does now because he's, you know, he's, he's a man of note. But... That's not his experience. So he did not build, he did not influence the building of these platforms in a way that would be able to mitigate the types of abuse you see. And when you are building these products and you don't have people who are being abused by these products in the room, you're not going to find the most optimal ways. You're actually just not going to build in the types of tooling to mitigate the abuse at an early stage. So that's, that, that's kind of what I've come up with because it just seems no one would really say that because people don't think, I don't think they think along those lines. But to me, it's, very, it's a very straight line to draw from, oh, you have a bunch of white guys building these products and then they go and they build another product, they build another, they build all these products because they never suffer from abuse. And when I'm sitting there and looking at it, I'm like, of course you, you're going to get abuse if you do something like this. Two days after I wrote my Medium post, I went back to Twitter and met with Alex Roeder. One of the first things he said to me, was it? this has been the worst 36 hours of my professional life. This is after he signed off on the laying off of 150 engineers. This is after his words were finally made public, and it's the worst 36 hours of his. And I said, why? He said, the abuse I'm getting on Twitter. People are calling me a racist. People are, are calling me a bigot. They say they hate me. And I'm like, oh, sorry. That doesn't make him a bad person. It makes him a privileged person who doesn't recognize his privilege. Because why would you tell someone who you have done and said things that are like ridiculous, I want you to build a tool that can find people by their race. And now you're going to tell me, I'm sitting here in front of you unemployed by the way, that it's the worst 36 hours of your experience. I, I just, it, it's, it's crazy. The question was, can you point out companies that are doing things right? What are they doing right? Slack's hiring. No, what I'm is serious. Slack doing right? S Slack is, is being intentional. Uh, Slack is, is not using the schools, not using the universities, not using uh, that as a proxy. Uh, and, and we're not perfect. And I don't think anyone is. Uh, I think Pandora is trying really hard as well. Uh, give a shout out to Pandora's upstairs and Woo! here in Oakland. Yeah. Twilio's doing really good. 
Uh, there's something interesting about these companies because they make it intentional and it is spoken of by their CEOs, it's spoken of by their executives. And I think that is where it starts. Erica Baker said it the best. Your chief diversity officer should be your CEO and your CEO should be your chief diversity officer. I do want to give a kind of a shout out to Twitter because they're trying really hard. Their head of uh, diversity who got a lot of flack when he started, Jeffrey Seminoff, is doing an incredible job from the people I've talked to there. And I respect those people and I know they don't tow the company line. So I just want you know, to call out Jeffrey and say, you still owe me a drink, buddy. There's a company in Cincinnati called Listener. A guy named Rodney Williams, he's doing a good job. There are, and there are much smaller companies. Uh, Clef here in Oakland is doing an amazing job. So, you know, there are companies out there that are doing it. Uh, un unfortunately, the Apples and the Googles and the Facebooks aren't doing that good of a job. And, you know, I, I, I always encourage them, don't look to Grace Hopper or Code 2040 to solve your problems. Just look inside because that's really where your problem is. It's not outside. This gentleman said he works, works at Apple now and had moved here, I guess, recently from Los Angeles and wanted to understand the differences between his experiences now and, and Leslie's experiences earlier at Apple. People who work at Apple are going to laugh about this. Uh, I, I think I worked so hard at Apple, I didn't recognize anything. They, 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 work you, they worked me like it was 1862. Um, <laughs> what? What? I mean, Apple was a little bit different for me because I joined a lot of coworkers uh, at the Apple online stores, the division I worked in, uh, that, that were very familiar to me. It was a little bit of a safe haven for me. Uh, and I was also able to hire in the way I wanted to hire. Uh, and I was able to hire intentionally. Uh, my team was about 50% women uh, in Cupertino. It was about 15% African-American. And my management chain supported that. And, and so for me, just in my division was, was really easy. Yeah, when I'd go to main campus, it was like, well, gee whiz, where is everybody? It wasn't weird then because when we walk into an engineering organization, what's normal is white and Asian. That's what we see, male, white, Asian. So if we don't see that, that's what's not normal. Uh, and so it, it, wasn't, it wasn't strange to me at the time. Uh, you know, I look back on it and, you know, it got a little strange in places. And, and I did have one experience where someone who I, who was a direct report of mine actually asked us if we were going to interview any white people because I was being very intentional about who I was interviewing. Things that, you know, I never thought I would, because I've never, ever, 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 ever said, are we going to interview any black people? So that this person who's in a sea of white feels like he can say that is another, you know, it's a privilege. It's like, I, like, how do you even come up with this question? I'm thinking about how to parse that because part of me is like, I'm an engineer and I want to programmatically solve this problem. And I think it's possible to programmatically solve it. I'm not sure if I want to give people the out that way. I think what they're doing is, is admirable. I like their intentions. Uh, I like that there's a tooling aspect of it. I just think I'd rather people be more intentional. And if this could be solved algorithmically, and I think it can, I think the people at the companies who are doing the worst have the talent to do it the best. Do you have any advice for black entrepreneurs in the Bay Area? Leave. <laughs> Seriously. Seriously. I mean, you, you have, what, one or two VC firms that will help? I, and I say leave because why stay in a place that's hostile? This is, Silicon Valley is hostile to diversity. And those of you who think it's not, sit in my chair. I get to talk about this for the first time in my career. Another example, Jesse Jackson came to Silicon Valley in 1998 talking about this. 1998. And here we are again, 2016, and we're still talking about it. It's hostile. I have such a great time because I get to mentor startup boot camps. 
for entrepreneurs of color, and they ask if they should come to Silicon Valley, and I say, why? Why do you want to come here when you're going to, you know, for some people, not even be able to find where to get your hair done? You're not going to be able to find your community. You're not going to feel welcome. And so you're going to come here and then try to be an entrepreneur, which is hard, which is impossible for most people, and then you're going to drag that? No, stay in Cleveland, stay in Detroit, stay in Miami, stay in New Orleans. There's, there are communities there that are growing. I think you'd find easier conversations with uh, venture and equity firms outside of Silicon Valley because you walk in the door and they're going to have a preconceived notion and you're, you're starting from way back. So tech in general for small startups that maybe don't have resources to travel to all the corners of the United States to seek all the different diverse communities that they maybe should, how do we encourage them to seek diverse talent? I wish we had some tools that would allow us to spread our message far and wide quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> sorry. There's a, a company called Winnie that's run by a former coworker and someone I call a friend, Sarah Moskoff. She's gotten funding. She's she's working it as 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 only I think women entrepreneurs can work it. And she just tweeted, "I'm looking for black engineers. That's a good place to start. Uh, just say what you're looking for, and 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 go from there. And you don't have to say I'm looking for black. I'm looking for. You can just say I'm looking for diverse talent. I'm looking for people who don't have." a traditional background to come in. That's a good way to start. And, and it's amazing when you do that, what you see. That's what we do at Slack, and we get people from everywhere. You know, I mean, I've never worked with people who have such a wide experience. I think we have a, uh, uh, a PM starting who was a Apache helicopter pilot. I can't wait for her to get there because it could solve my commute. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, we, we have people who come from, you know, different countries who are self-taught. Just have to go out there and say, I'm looking for something different. And it has a tendency to find its way to you. The question, if I understood it correctly, was we've been talking a lot about diversity with race and ethnicity. And should we be talking more about economic class and socioeconomic status and those kinds of things? Not in the ways that I think would lift people up. They're like, let's open up a neighborhood center. Let's give computers to a school. Uh, and and, and that while that helps, and I, I don't think that, that that should be minimized, I do believe that other things can be done. Uh, I have been having conversations with people about opening up engineering centers in places like Detroit. One of the things that is amazing to me is that Apple and Twitter and Google and Facebook can open up tech centers, centers of excellence in India and China. And yet, when I was at Twitter, we couldn't get money to go to a HBCU. Yet you could fly 15 engineers to interview people in China. It was an amazing disconnect. And, and I think that's how you start building people up. That's how you start making an impact is that you put engineering jobs. I'm not talking customer service jobs. I'm not talking service jobs. I'm talking engineering jobs in these areas. And you hire the people in those areas and you let their friends and you let their families see the benefits. And those people will aspire to that. And, and that is something that I just don't understand why they don't do that. And, and maybe, maybe they have this hangover from the 80s or something where auto manufacturers did that and had to pull back. But you know, there was you know, logistical reasons, but there were also reasons why there were places in Ohio and places in the South and places in the West and in the Northwest. And we could do the same thing, but tech wants to put it in areas that are familiar. Folks who stay have, can have more influence rather than, than sort of admit defeat? <laughs> Silicon Valley won a long time ago. <laughs> it did. Uh, I hear what you're saying, and I, I understand where you're coming from. I go back to Jesse Jackson coming here in 1998. I, I go to all the times I was told I was too aggressive. 
when, when, how much patience am I supposed to have? That's my, that's my question to everyone. How much patience are we supposed to have? Great, great, great speaker a couple of weeks ago, uh, last week at Slack, B. Arthur. Uh, she, not that B. Arthur. She's a different <laughs> B. Arthur. She started a company uh, that did uh, was providing mental health therapy online. And it was one of the first companies to do this. And she couldn't get funding. She, wa- she was on Shark Tank. She went through, uh, I think it was 500 startups. And she probably heard no over a thousand times, which is a lot for any entrepreneur. And she knows what's happening. So when is she supposed to, how much patience is she supposed to have? You know, we're going to keep hearing no. And that's why I'm like, why, why fight a system that doesn't want you? Why fight a system that has consistently devalued you? And that is part of my experience. I love Silicon Valley. I was born and raised here. I am, I am the epitome of what should be capable in Silicon Valley. And yet I have suffered indignities that most people will never suffer. I've been told to fix a copier machine during an interview. That's the Silicon Valley I know. You know, I've been told I'm too aggressive. That's the Silicon Valley I know. You know, I've been judged differently my entire career that spans almost 20 years. It's home. (laughs) I don't want to belabor that point, and I know it's a little bit contentious, but I also think that this is the message Silicon Valley has to have from us, which is we don't have to be patient. I don't have to keep coming to you. I can either build my own or I can leave. I I have no desire to do a Sandhill Road run and talk to people who dismiss me the moment I walk through the door. And until Silicon Valley fundamentally changes. And I have a lot of friends in the venture community who have told me they don't care about diversity. They're all about the money. And I agree with that. That's their job. So I would rather go someplace and or talk to people who care a little bit more about diversity than about the money. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you.